if you've got your trademarks sorted, it shows your house is in order, you've got a brand you can build on, and people are much more inclined to invest in a business that is well set and it's clear that they're gonna be protected for the next 20, 25 years or so as they go forward. You're listening to the Make It British podcast. I'm Kate Hills and I'm on a one-woman mission to save UK manufacturing. I invite you to join me every Tuesday and Friday when I'll be sharing the stories behind some of the best British-made brands and UK manufacturers and offering you advice on making in the UK. Let's crack on with the show. Welcome to episode 66 of the Make It British podcast. Today, I've got another recording for you of the talk that happened at Make It British Live. And this one is by Sarah Talland and Dave Holt, who are specialists in intellectual property, patents and copyright. And they work for award-winning legal firm Potter Clarkson. Now, before you glaze over and think, oh gosh, boring legal talk... It's actually really, really fascinating. It's really helpful. They've got lots of great things to say. Should you need to know about how to protect your brand or your product from people copying you and what you can do, they tell you all about the different types of patents that you can get, um, what you can get a patent for and how patents might change when it comes to Brexit. They also talk about the type of designs that you can register and how you can register a design to help protect it and also about trademarks and why it's really important to actually protect your brand and trademark it and how you can do that. So I hope you enjoy this talk and I hope you find it's useful. They refer quite a lot to the slides that they were talking about when they did the talk. And I'm going to pop a copy of those as I'm going to do with all of the talks that I'm putting um, out on the podcast over the next few weeks. And I'll put the slides from Potter Clarkson in the show notes for this podcast, which you can find at makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash 066. I hope you enjoy this podcast from Potter Clarkson and find it useful. They are specialists in law and copyright, particularly for the fashion and textile industry. They work with a lot of fashion brands. So they're a really useful company if that's the sector that you're in. And I will put a link to their business so you can get in touch with them as well in the show notes for this podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now over to Sarah and Dave. Hello, good afternoon. As uh, Kate said, my name is Sarah Talland and we're here with my colleague Dave Holt to talk about IP, intellectual property. Uh, We're just going to do a a run through of all the different types of IP just to give you a flavour of what each one might cover and what might be of interest to you. And then a kind of why, but why should you bother with IP? Why is it important? And try and cover as, as much as we can what Brexit means too for us and give you some practical tips on how to better protect your IP uh, in the market. I think Dave's going to kick off with the patent side. Yeah, that's great. Uh, So, thanks, Sarah. Um, 
Right, so patents. I'm not sure how many of you have a patent or have applied for a patent. Congratulations if you have. Um, just to try and summarize it for you, the easiest way to define what you would get a patent for is something with a technical effect. You're looking for that spark of innovation. You're looking for the light bulb, the light bulb moment, something that's new and inventive. Um, quite often you'll see these relating to products and devices, some of you with manufacturing equipment, something that's custom made, for example. Quite commonly you'll see it with chemicals and pharmaceuticals, you know, people falling out over paracetamol generic products all of that sort of stuff as well. Um, we've had some questions actually while we've been here about software. Um, bit of a tricky one, but effectively, if your software does something in the real world that has a technical effect, so maybe improves your manufacturing processes, increases the efficiency of your hardware, you might be able to get a patent over that as well. So it's not just things in the physical realm. Sometimes if you're very inventive with your software, you may also get something out of it. So worth having. As I say, it's got to be novel and inventive and if over anything worldwide, which is quite a tricky standard to meet. Um, unfortunately, some poor people after Glasnost in, uh, in Russia in the 80s, somebody found one book in a Russian library that hadn't been read for at least 60 years and it knocked out somebody's patent. I don't know who the junior lawyer was who was sent over there, bad luck for them, but they found something worthwhile. So you've got to be very sure that what you've done is new. You don't want to be following down a rabbit hole if you've not got a new product. So always useful to make sure you do your initial searches, work out what's there. Um, and then when you're confident you've got something new and exciting, then you go and pursue it as a business idea. So a patent as well as what we call a monopoly right. So the idea is you're contributing something to society. You've done something amazing. But the trade-off for you being able to exploit it for your 20-year period is that you have to tell everyone exactly how you've done it. So once you've done that, you get your monopoly, you get to hopefully make as much money as possible out of it, and then after that right has lapsed, everyone else can use that benefit in knowledge. It's the idea behind it. So that's why it's such a valuable right, because you get that 20 years where only you can create that invention. So depending on what your invention is, it can take two to four years to grant. It can be quite a long process, which is why you see more pharmaceutical companies and big companies pursuing these than, than small startups. But you shouldn't treat that as a disincentive. If you think you've got an idea that is going to be patentable, it's always worth checking and following it up because it can be so valuable in the future. Uh, so these are some examples of, of patents that we've either had some involvement in or, or, uh, or seen coming through. Um, you'll see some materials for replacement underwires. So you've got sort of elastic loops uh, fitting in, which was a recent one. Uh, different forms of carpet milling. And this one is, uh, again, some smart fabric from Nottingham Trent University. So potentially all relevant areas that you, you guys are working in. Perfect, right, so um, a patent's slightly different uh, to some other rights in that it is purely territorial. So you've got to be very selective as to where your business is going to go. You're going to have to work out where you want to protect it. So if you're going to sell in the US, go to the US. If you're going to go to Japan, worth filing in Japan. But there's no point spending money filing a patent somewhere where you're just not going to sell your product. If you're not going to sell in Africa, if you're not going to sell in Asia, it's not worth spending the money because you will end up with a right that just doesn't get used and you've spent money over nothing. So you've got to be quite careful that you're picking your right consumer markets. So you've got to think about where you're going to sell it, think about how you're going to sell it and who you want to reach, and you want to try and tailor your applications on that basis. So be smart, put a commercial and business plan in place when you're coming up with your invention, work out where you want to sell it, and then you won't end up overspending on something that eventually you just don't need. So you know, don't want to be throwing good money after, after nothing. So you can file in the UK 
Europe or you can go globally. Most of our, uh, sorry, most of our people that we represent, they will start off in the UK if that's their home market. They'll then expand it within the first 12 months to Europe, which gives you the other 27 states. Um, or you can do what we call a patent cooperation treaty application, which means you can basically go through a big tick list of the countries you want to file in and you send out your application through a single portal and it goes to those countries to get assessed. So that's where you get your tick list of where you want to try and commercialize and exploit. So that's quite a useful system and your friendly patent attorney, we did bring a couple along. Um, I won't point out the one at the back because I don't want them to get inundated, but we have a number of patent attorneys who can help you with that sort of filing. Okay. The reason that we haven't put the long B word in uh, is that I heard if you say it three times in a row, <laughs> Nigel Farage appears behind you with a warm beer. So nobody likes uh, warm beer. Uh, so we're going to try and keep it to a minimum. But the main thing about patents is the only concern is more a lawyer's concern. The only thing that is potentially going to affect is a new court that would have made our lives a lot easier. And arguably those of you who have patents. But the patent system is, is supranational. The cooperation treaty is signed completely externally from the EU. So the withdrawal, apart from changing us being in a group of 28 to having a separate little UK tick in a box, nothing else really changes. Unfortunately, they have built a really nice new court just down the road, uh, which they might be using for I don't know, HMRC offices or something, because they may end up moving it to Madrid because Germany are kicking off about the fact we've left the EU. But that's more of a lawyer's problem. Hopefully you never have to go to court on your patent, so it wouldn't, wouldn't be relevant. Um, practicalities, really, your patent attorney will be able to deal with that for you. It's just a slightly different process and ticking a different box, but in reality, shouldn't really affect your, your processes. Okay, and designs. Um, if any of you trade in the US, it's a bit confusing because the US system conflates patents and designs together. So you have what's called a design patent. But this is probably what's relevant for a lot of you. It's all about the aesthetics. It's how something looks from the outside, how it's created, its shape. So you've got your Louboutin shoes, you've got your trunky cases, the little wheelie cases around. These are the sort of things you'll get protected with registered designs. You'll also see clothing, bottle shapes. So perfume bottles are another one. And it's another right you can get registered in the UK and in the community, so the EU. So you can have either one country or you can have the full 28 for now. There's also what we call registered and unregistered designs. Much more useful for fashion, really, because they're just short-lived. They basically start to come into existence as soon as you've sold something. They'll protect you for either three or 10 years, depending on whether it's in the EU or the UK. But it's very much designed for products with a quick turnover. So the English one is longer because we've never been very good at fashion. Historically, we prefer shoes which last for 10 years and they're great. And so we'll get the protection for that. We've not been very good at uh, you know, the French dresses that change over every season. Um, but always useful to know those rights are there in case somebody starts to copy your design early on. So the design system is something that's been pushed quite a lot recently. They're not very expensive to get registered. They can be quite a good uh, way of dissuading other people from getting too close to your designs because it's a piece of paper you can wave around saying, well, this is registered. Please don't copy it. Somebody else agrees that it's valid. So, you know, try and, try and get people to stay away. You get up to 25 years from the date you file it. You will have to renew it um, to keep it live. So if it's a line that you are just letting go, you might want to let it lapse. Don't worry about paying the fees if you're not using the product anymore. Um, the 12-month grace period, 
is where you sell something on the market, turns out it's a huge success, and you actually want to try and register it because you think actually this is probably going to be worth some money for a longer period of time. So you've got up to 12 months from the date of your first marketing or publication, so say your first catwalk show, you can then try and get your design registered. Just don't do what uh, Adidas did, put your flip-flop out there, get it copied um, by Steve Madden, and then forget to register it in time within the 12 months. So Steve Madden got away with it. Apparently his were about 10 times the price as well, so uh, he was laughing on that one. And then, as I say, the unregistered design, which I've, which I've already mentioned, is much more of what we call a catwalk, right? It's just there from the moment it's published, and if it's protected, great. And the UK right has been really useful in the UK recently. Uh, Super Dry have managed to protect their gilet, so those of you who know, they've got the hood embedded in it. They've managed to stop copycats from using that because you can pick on one particular part of the design that's inventive. You can pick that out and say, look, they've copied this, so you can't actually be using that part of my design. They successfully litigated, uh, as have Diesel on their arc-shaped jeans. They've got sort of a more banana leg shape, and they've again managed to stop people from using it because the shape of the jeans was the particular part that was inventive. So that can be one to rely on, even if you haven't got your registered design, worth having a think about. If you've got somebody who's a copycat and you think you've got something that's quite creative, maybe think about using that as a, as a way of saying, you know, please stay out of my design area. And again, these are some of the things you'll commonly get. So you can get shoes, um, bras, dresses. Um, and actually, no, that is a London company that's registered a dress, so I've been unfair on the London fashion industry, obviously. Um, but again, it's, these sorts of line drawings are common. The, the current wisdom is if you do it in black and white and you do it in a line, it covers every color that you could then make from that. So black and white line drawing is usually the starting point unless you're going for a really specific color that you want to protect. So that's uh, it's normally quite useful to know if you're going to try and file one, make sure you've got your black and white line drawing as well as some of the representations you'd use in practice. Okay, so the designs is where it gets a little bit more complicated. So the good news is we've signed up to a, another global treaty, which is called the Hague uh, Agreement. What it will mean is you can go through that system separately and again go through your tick list. And what will happen there again is the UK will be pulled out of the EU section. You'll have to make sure you identify the UK as somewhere you want to cover. And then the EU is a separate option. Um, so that won't be affected by the B word. Um, but what will be affected are your EU unregistered designs, your EU registered designs, and your UK registered designs particularly. Um, so the EU registered designs, the current thinking is that the UK will just honour the right you already had. So they'll say, okay, well, we'll treat it as if you've had that right in the UK on its own since the date you filed your European design. So hopefully they'll pull that one off. Um, the complications arise with the unregistered design point. So you will have had to sell it in the EU first if you want to benefit from an EU unregistered design. Whereas previously, because the UK was part of the EU, you could benefit from having both. So if the EU is your major market, you've got to think carefully about where your launch is going to be. Because if you want to try and register a particular design or you want to rely on unregistered designs, start off in Europe if that's going to be your market. If the UK is your market, start there, not a problem, but this is what's going to change. So think commercially about where you're going to push it and think about carefully about your first sale or launch and where you're going to have that. Um, so as I say, that's the point that's, that we've put last on the sheet. If you don't go to the EU first, 
you can pretty much write off the EU unregistered design as, as something you can make sort of benefit of, if you will. Right, thanks, Dave. Okay. I'm going to move on to trademarks, as this is my area of expertise as a trademark attorney. And um, this is probably something that all of you may have some experience in or have seen different brands and things in the media about branding. So not every business will have a patent or a design, but every business has a brand. So this is something that's probably applicable to everyone that has a business selling anything. Um, so trademark, what is a trademark? So it's defined as an indicator of origin. So anything that distinguishes your business, your product from somebody else's. So it's usually your brand name, but it can be lots of other things. Um, provided it's distinctive. So distinctive is designed, you know, defined as being yeah, the indicator of origin function. So for example, to give you an example, if you were to use the mark Apple for a business that sells apples, that's not distinctive. But Apple for computers and technology is distinctive. And that kind of gives you the flavor of what distinctive might mean for you. Um, so it can include anything. There's a whole list there, including words, logos, which are the, the kind of main ones. Um, ranging from the more to the more unusual marks, such as um, signatures, slogans, colors, even smells or sounds. Those are some of the new ones that are coming through. Like perfumes have been able to trademark their specific scent. It's quite difficult to do, but it is possible. So um, anything is possible. I'll just move on. Some examples of uh, word and logo marks for you. I'm sure you recognize almost all of those. Just give you an idea of, yeah, obviously they're distinctive because you would recognize them. And there's a few more with, without the word marks on here. So they're kind of um, just logo marks on their own. So you can register your word brand and you can register your logo brand either together or separately. And there's Apple there, obviously. And then, so we're just going to talk through how trademark rights are acquired. They can be through use, which is known as unregistered trademark rights in some countries, and primarily through registration in most markets. Uh, so unregistered trademark rights are more difficult to inquire and to acquire and to enforce against third parties, and therefore it's highly recommended to register uh, your trademark so it can be an asset for your business and allow you to enforce that against third parties and also deter third parties from copying your branding. So I'm just going to talk a bit more about unregistered rights. So in the UK, it's known as protecting your goodwill um, by the means of passing off or unfair competition, uh, depending on if the, in the UK or the EU. So in the UK, your goodwill is acquired through using a mark here. Um, you essentially gain goodwill from a couple of years' use, so it can be shorter or longer than that. And then if somebody else were to use a very similar brand or logo or word mark to you and try to pass themselves off as being your business, um, then this is where this right comes in for you if you don't have a registered trademark. Um, we're li really looking at confusion or what's known as misrepresentation, whether you know, if you start getting emails from somebody saying, oh, I dealt with this business in um, a certain country or a certain part of the country and now that you know, I, I thought they were you, that's a kind of classic passing off example. And then uh, you should probably look at taking some action against that because it can damage your reputation very quickly. So there's a lot of cases involving um, supermarket-owned brands. You've probably seen a lot of these very similar products in supermarkets where they look you know, very much like the main brand in the, in the market. Um, those are quite difficult cases, but there have been a lot of passing off cases around that area as well. I just move on to registered rights. So this provides you a basis uh, for infringement, so to prevent, excuse me, prevent use or registration of a similar trademark or identical trademark by others in the market. Again, like patents, it gives you an automatic exclusive monopoly right once you have your registration. 
and it's publicly viewable to others on the database. So people doing searches for new brands will see your trademark, hopefully, if they do searches. They do the correct searches, and then we'll decide to use something else, hopefully. <laughs> um, so you have to register a trademark in respect of different classes of goods and services. So you have to tell your trademark advisor or when you're filing your application, decide what you're going to register it for. Um, because we're here today for a kind of fashion and textiles event, that would mostly be class 25, which covers clothing, headwear, uh, headgear and footwear. Those are the main classes. Class 24 is also the kind of fabrics, um, textiles type class as well. So those would be the main ones uh, for you. And then you get, so protection, it says there protection even if not using up to a certain point. So you, once you file your trademark, in the UK you need to have intention to use, but in the EU you don't. You get up to five years. Um, once your trademark's then registered for five years, it may be vulnerable to non-use. So it, it, really you don't want to register um, at the point at which you're going to be using it in the last, next five years. That's usually a good um, time frame. Um, and then it says there about what I said about comparing it with um, unregistered rights. So it's much easier and more cost effective to enforce a registered trademark than unregistered rights. And I already mentioned the deterrent factor too. And then an important point at the end is that this is the only form of rights in some countries. So I mentioned that unregistered rights really only applies in common law countries, such as the UK, some EU countries. Um, so, so in the likes of China, which I'm sure you're all aware of is a big counterfeit country, um, they only recognize registered rights. So if you don't have your trademark registered there, it's very difficult to enforce against third parties. But it's also very easy for another, what's called a trademark squatter, in China to register your trademark, um, even an identical trademark, and there won't be anything you can do about it. And that pretty much blocks you from the market. So it really is important, as soon as you're looking to launch here, that you also think about whether you're going to be launching in China in the near future, and look at registering a trademark there as well just to uh, yeah, protect yourself. I've seen it so many times when p companies get caught out, unfortunately. So, Again, looking at sort of where you can register, I've mentioned UK register and then EU-wide rights by virtue of an EUTM, which covers all 28 countries, currently the UK, but we'll get to that about Brexit. And you can then um, decide to, you have to, it's, Trademark rights are territorial, so you have to decide which then countries you want to register in. So if China's one, for example, you look at registering in China. Um, and for example, um, the US might be a big market for you. Um, Australia might be a big market. So you just pick the countries that you're interested in and look to file in those. Um, there is something uh, called the International Trademark System, uh, which is filed by WIPO. Um, which is a cost-effective way of gaining protection in a wide range of countries. So it's, again, as Dave mentioned about the patent system, it's kind of a tick box. You tick the countries that you're interested in and you get protection in those. It's yeah, a little bit more complicated than that, but that's essentially it. You get one trademark, you only have to renew one trademark, you monitor and register one trademark. So um, that's a useful system to consider as well. And then... Now, this is the kind of process of obtaining a trademark registration. We recommend um, initial searches, which is a really good step just to make sure there's no one else who's using a similar mark or has registered a, a similar mark. You might do kind of in-trade or on-the-market searches yourself, but if you haven't actually searched the register, you might miss something that's out there that could block you from either using or registering. So that's a really important first step. So we do some uh, initial clearance searches of the trademark registers, but also things like company names and domain name registers. You might be really wedded to a brand, but if you can't get the .com domain, then that might change what you decide to use or to register. 
And then I put on there about likelihood of confusion. That comes into um, what else is on the market or in the register. It's whether your brand might be confusing with theirs. And that's just something we consider as part of whether we're clearing a mark, when we're clearing a mark for you. Ah, the, the B word. Uh, the good news for trademark rights, as for um, patents, I think, is that, well, the UK Trademark Office has already settled the position on what happens with EU trademarks. So you might apply for an EU trademark now, or you might already have an EU trademark, and you're wondering what happens to my, the UK portion of that right after Brexit in October or whenever it might happen. The good news is that UK Trademark Office has already said, whatever happens, whether we leave with a deal, without a deal, they will clone that right into a corresponding UK registration with the same date, the same information, and you'll then just have a separate UK registration to monitor and renew um, and enforce from then on. Um, the WIPO, so I mentioned the international system, is, is hopefully going to be the same as that. Um, the only thing that will change after we leave the EU, so you'll need to register in the UK and EU separately, whether you file nationally or through the WIPO system. So it changes everything from when we leave um, up until then. The idea, the, the stated intention is that it shouldn't change anything. It just means you have a separate registration. Okay, so copyright. Uh, another one you might be familiar with. It's probably one of the oldest rights. Um, when you were scribbling down with your quill and parchment, that would be your copyright rights. The, the interesting thing in the UK is it's what we call a non-registration right. It exists from the point you put pen to paper and create your intellectual creation. So the difficulty a lot of people find is how you prove that you've created it. I had a question about this yesterday. Somebody said, well, okay, fine. I've got a, I've got a piece of work that I created. How do I prove when I created it and then it, it was me? Um, us being lawyers, a bit like your accountants, keep good records, guys, um, always really helpful. So the way we recommend you do it is as soon as you've created something, if it's a clothing design, if it's a written work, if it's a poem, something of that nature, sign it, date it, scan it onto your computer. You've then got a record of when you created it, who it was that created it, and you've got a PDF saying this was created on X date, so you've got something to go back to. As a lawyer who's had to scrabble around in a lot of written records. It makes our lives so much easier. It'll make your life so much cheaper if you can say, oh yeah, no, that's fine. I created this in 2017. Here's a PDF. You can check it. I signed it, dated it, and scanned it. And it makes our letter telling somebody else to stop using your poem so much easier rather than us having to come to your house and go through all your old files to try and find your original slightly tea-stained piece of paper. So that is always quite helpful. And that's not always the case in every country. The US has a copyright register. Um, copyright is also extremely useful in China. So if you have got evidence of copyright, it can be something that you can use to stop people offending. Um, I'm not sure how many are familiar with Games Workshop. They're a Nottingham business. They create small statues, um, really expensive apparently. Um, but they had a problem with people selling imitations through Alibaba in, in China. They tried to use trademarks, they tried to use evidence of their reputation. The one thing that worked was sending them all of their original design work in a massive folder, sending that over to Alibaba and saying, look, we created this 15 years ago, these are copied. They completely took down all of the other offending products. So it's about finding the right route that works for you. Sometimes it's maybe not what you think. So. Sometimes if you've got copyright, if you've got a dress design that you want to uh, really make the most of, keep the good records and hold on to it because it could be an asset in future. So there are other ways around it. So copyright can be a useful right to rely on. 
how long it lasts. 70 years after the death of the author is true in most cases for most of your traditional literary works, something you've written. Um, not the case for sound recordings, which is why a lot of the original Beatles tracks and things start coming up after 25 years and you can use certain parts of those. Um, but generally speaking, if you're not dealing in music, it's slightly less complicated, so that's a bonus. Um, copyright notices are another good one. If you're putting any of your designs up on your website, if you're publicizing them, if you can identify them as your copyright work, it's just another flag to anyone who chooses to copy them to say, look, you're treading on a right that I've already secured. Um, and you know, your terms and conditions on your website, if you've got one, can also make it clear that nobody should be copying it and using it without your permission. So set your fence out, make sure people know what's yours and you know, be as clear as possible and that'll hopefully help you protect your position um, when you're going out to the market. Um, the protection point, independent creation is the, the main drawback of copyright against, say, a trademark. So your trademark is your monopoly. When it's on the register, it's public. Everyone can see it, and it's there. Copyright, independent creation, you could have created something, and it could be brilliant, but somebody else might have been you know, the other side of the world, never even seen your work, and created exactly the same thing. Think a million monkeys, million typewriters. If they haven't actually copied from your work, and they've not had access to it, you can't do anything about it. So that's why some of these registered rights are really useful because you don't have to prove that they've copied it in the first place. It just has to be sufficiently close to your monopoly that they need to stop doing something about it. So although it is handy, just be aware of that limitation because if somebody pleads innocence and you've, say, got a design that's never been publicized, they've never had access to it, you're going to struggle to stop them doing it without another form of right to back that up. So it's always good to have a suite to make sure that you've got the best protection possible. So these are some of the designs that are protected by copyright and have been protected in cases before. Um, the floral design in the middle was one of the starting cases for copyright infringement uh, designers guilds. So that was a design that was held, the copyright was infringed when somebody created a fairly similar fabric using similar colors. So you can use it to, to stop people running off to the same designs that you created yourself. Um, some of the less common ones, you've got posters there. So it's one of our, uh, one of our famous motorcycle brands, Triumph. Um, that was again copied and they relied on copyright because again, they had the original record of the guy who'd, who'd drawn the whole thing for them and you could use that to, to prevent somebody else from copying it. So always useful to have in the back pocket and just keep those records as well if you can. Okay, so copyright is a bit of a weird one. Um, it's not what we'd call harmonized. There is a lot of legislation between various countries saying, yes, of course, we'll recognize whatever you create and vice versa. So, you know, the UK and Singapore have got treaties saying we'll recognize your copyright if you recognize ours. The good thing about that is that a lot of it doesn't, again, tie to the EU. Um, there are some things that do, though, some of which are more annoying than others, including using content abroad. So if you have blocks on your phone, you're not able to view certain content because you're from the UK when you get into Europe after <clears throat> the uh, B word happens. That's because these are European directives. So overall, it's relatively limited. I'm hoping it won't affect too many of your businesses, but um, it's yeah, online content, broadcasters as well. So they might need to clear all of their shows in every single state. So if you're broadcasting content, it may be much more labor intensive for you to actually share that across EU countries. Um, and licensing music or copyright works might also be more difficult because the 
the agencies that would collect on your behalf and would enforce on your behalf, they're no longer going to be mandated to do that um, as they are at the moment. So if any of you are photographers, just be aware that this is something you might have to be careful of if you think your, your works are actually going to be shared in the EU. It's not going to be as straightforward to collect in all the royalties you're entitled to. Um, so if you work with an agency at the moment, make sure you raise that question with them because you don't want to be losing out on revenue as a result of lazy uh, collection because they're no longer obliged to act on your behalf. So keep an eye out for that. However, the government has said they'll try and preserve the law on copyright as much as possible, but that would require them to write some more legislation. So there's not necessarily a timeline on that, but we can keep our fingers crossed. So generally, why do you want to bother with IP? Uh, this was something I mentioned to people the last time I spoke here. It's a market monopoly, which is great. It's uh, not quite a license to print money, but it will help you establish your position in the marketplace without a huge amount of competition from people you don't want to be ripping off your ideas and your products. The other thing is adding fiscal value. So what a lot of people don't realize is that registered rights are quite often valued as part of an appraisal of a business, whether it's for funding, whether it's for investment, whether it's for sale. You know, if you're looking at an exit, having a really good suite of IP rights that are all clearly recorded and you've clearly got your rights that you'll be able to enforce against other people, that's massive for an investor because what they want to see is something where, okay, I really like the trademark. If somebody starts copying it, can I enforce it against them? If the answer to that is no, there's a much more limited value in that brand. You know, if you bought Nike and you found out they've got no trademarks and somebody could effectively just copy that tick logo and start selling exactly the same products, probably wouldn't be worth as many billions as it is now. So much with everything else, financial records and so on, if you can keep all of that in order, it makes any investment um, and any early stage funding as well. If you're in a startup, if you've got your trademarks sorted, it shows your house is in order, you've got a brand you can build on and people are much more inclined to invest in a business that is well set and it's clear that they're gonna be protected for the next 20, 25 years or so as they go forward. I just jump in there. One of the biggest examples of this that people often recognize once they know a bit more about IP is watching Dragon's Den. I don't know if you've ever seen when they say, actually, do you have this patented or do you have a design or a trademark in place for this before they just, the investors decide to invest? So it can be a really big you know, part of the decision-making process for investors. It's you know, something to consider. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it is critical. So it's just worth going through and making sure you're clear on where you are with that. So yeah, and then um, practical tips. Um, it's the final slide. So yeah, have an IP strategy. Um, when it comes to the B word, you can read the government website. They will publish certain things, normally the good news. Um, you know, the bad news they'll sort of shove to the back somewhere. Um, but it is always worth reading the website to see, uh, to see what's happening. A lot of law firms, patent attorneys, trademark attorneys are publishing short articles updating people on where everything is. So if there's something you want to research or follow up, a, a solid Google search will normally give you at least a form, of, uh, a form of information. Try and follow something that law firms are doing or a trade association or somebody who's likely to have researched it rather than an angry man on Reddit. So, you know, avoid those. Um, although they are entertaining, so maybe worth a read for that. Um, when you've got your prevention your protection strategy. Think about how you want to deploy your rights. If you've got a mix, think about what's the best one to use in a particular scenario. What's the closest to what the person you want to stop is actually doing? So, you know, in the same way you'd plan a commercial strategy, tailor it so it makes the most sense. Don't just throw everything at it. Try and plan it in advance and, and see what makes the most sense. Um, say so record trail, keep your records, ideal for, for everything really. And 
when it comes to new ideas, new strategy, confidentiality is something that quite a lot of people forget because people get very excited about ideas. They want to share them with as many people as possible. And the problem is if one person goes and takes that idea away, if it's in the case of a patent or a design particularly, if that's out in the public domain, you might have lost your right to protect that, at which point you need to move very quickly to make sure that you're the first one on the market and you end up in a rush situation you don't want to be in. So if you're talking to collaborators, you're talking to investors, you're talking to mentors, people who might be able to help you, get an NDA signed so they can't talk about that idea outside you and them unless you tell them they can. So it's really important to... Uh, to do that if you can do that up front. It's important for anyone who's starting as well as anyone who's well into their business and has just got a new idea and concept. So keep aware of that because it can make a big difference. And obviously we would say this, but seek professional advice. If there's something you're not sure about, there's a strategy you haven't got planned yet, that's why we're here to help you. There are people much more intelligent than me that can help you out with your patents. They can help you out with the technical areas. They know what the market is doing. They've seen different examples of this type of technology before, and they should be able to guide you and hopefully help you get the right result. So if you have any questions, um, you know, feel free to email any of us. Um, we'll answer as many questions as we can in the time available if you've, if you've got any. Start at the front. Um, hi. So uh, when you're thinking about designing a trademark, are there any rules of how different it has to be to anything else that's out there? Okay, so that's how different the trademark has to be to So a good rule else. is not to copy anybody else, because if that comes out and that you've actually tried to copy somebody else, then that is um, you know, something that goes against you in litigation, as Dave probably knows better than I do. Um, it, what you're looking at, the search, as part of the searches that we do, we're looking at how different they are. It's kind of an overall impression. It's not just, is there one letter difference or is it different color? It's kind of the overall impression between them. It depends on the market. It depends on how many other similar type marks there might be in a field, how distinctive that brand is. So if we're looking at the Apple example, if you're kind of using a, a play on the word Apple or, you know, you're kind of using a distinct a descriptive word in a different way then that i think reduces the scope of your protection and you can be a bit more similar to others in the market but it really is a kind of global assessment they call it so hi uh, what would be the situation if you had a brand you've trademarked that brand and then you change your logo mm -hmm. so the word is the same but the logo's changed how does that affect so that is a great reason for registering a word mark because it, you know, we do know that slogans and labels and logos change. If you've got the word mark registered, then that's protected for any, anybody else that might use it in any form. So that includes logos or colors or that sort of thing. Is that a specific application to go for a word mark? Yes, rather so than... you would just file it in plain text. It covers all fonts or colors or uh, you know, styles that that would cover. It's a very broad type of registration. We usually recommend starting with that one. There are reasons to protect your logos as well. If you've kind of got something quite distinctive in that logo, it's you've designed it yourself or you've had it designed by a designer and you're going to be using that on its own. So the, some of the examples we showed, the Adidas three stripes, they use that separately. So there are reasons to register that separately from your word mark. Um, but the word mark is a good place to start. Hi, I'm coming in from the point of view of a small sole trader manufacturing items, selling through the website. Come across places, um, situations where people have lifted the photograph of somebody's product and flogged it off as their own, they're selling it on another site. What can we do about that? 
Okay, so quite commonly that's um, in passing off. So if you don't have the knowledge of who the original photographer was, if there's somebody you've worked with, the benefit is you can use that photographer's copyright to pursue that individual. So I don't know how many of you are aware of the Gigi Hadid um, issues that are going on in the US. She's been regramming paparazzi photographers' photos for her own use to however many million followers but the photographers are able to say to her they're not allowed, she's not allowed to use that photograph because they have the copyright in it. So that's potentially option one. If you know who the photographer is, you've had it taken and you've got the rights in that photograph, you can send them a cease and desist on the basis of that. The other thing is if you've sold a lot of your product or at least you've got relevant what we call goodwill, so people know your business and they'd recognize your business from that product, you can make an argument that they are passing themselves off as you, which Sarah mentioned. So that's what we call um, a common law right. That's something in the UK courts predominantly. So you can send them a letter basically saying you are co-opting part of my brand in order to take unfair advantage of that and try and make money off the back of it. Now, whether there's normal passing off and reverse passing off, but fundamentally, if they're using your part of your brand to try and make money, you genuinely have a, well, generally have a cause of action against them. But those are the two ways we'd, we'd normally go about it. Um, there's also an option of speaking to the website directly. So if they are a relatively responsive website, someone like Etsy, I mean, Amazon can be useful, but as Sarah said, registered rights are more useful, but they will sometimes respond to copyright. You can submit a complaint, ask for a takedown to be taken place. You can go through formal channels with them as well. So you can try those three things. I mean, you can always try contact them in the first place, but generally they just ignore people, which is really frustrating. But if you use any of those channels, those can be solutions. Um, but you, know, you can mention these things, you can set out why they shouldn't be using it, and then if you need to, you can pursue it through more formal channels. Um, but hopefully you'll get a, a resolution. Time for a last one. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I think oh, yeah, we'll fit one in. Depends how long a question it is. Though. It's a small one, yeah. I think. Um, I was wondering, how do they actually assess how old the document is that's supposed to prove the date that you could have just written five seconds before you to sh provide yeah. as evidence. How Good, do they? Yeah, for copyright purposes. Yeah, and are there other yeah. ways to help make it more um, secure? Yeah, absolutely. So that, that's a really good question because you have to believe the, the honesty and the integrity of the person that's provided. Um, so historically, you would have people being grilled quite heavily by barristers about when it was created. You know, sometimes people would go to the extent of having handwriting analyses done. But the easiest way now is if you've got an electronic file, there are online services that basically provide a verified date stamp. So a bit like DocuSign will do an electronic document. You can get these services that will timestamp it for you and then will stand behind that timestamp uh, when it comes to you know, having it assessed. So you can then provide almost a certification for that. So that tends to be the easiest solution. If you're completely against the digital world, good luck. Um, but generally speaking, unless there's some significant evidence to the contrary, when it was created is quite rarely challenged because it can be very hard and it looks like you're attacking the authenticity of that person, which is quite a bad tactic in, in a case because you start attacking an individual, doesn't play that well uh, in front of the court most of the time unless there's reason to do so. So yeah, if you can use those online services, they can be quite helpful for just backing up your evidence of that as well. Okay. Um, Final question, I think. We're yeah, running out of yeah, time. Yeah, we got... <laughs> yeah. Oh, hello. Um, so I have a menswear, women's wear brand, and I know that in the fashion industry, um, a lot of companies can replicate 
each other's designs. Mm -hmm. So if I had a jacket that I made specifically for my brand and I haven't seen it anywhere mm -hmm. and somebody then copies my design mm -hmm. and it's on my website or anything like that, then is there anything that I can actually do with regards to that? Yeah, so if it's if it's accrued um, what we call UK unregistered design rights, so you might not have needed to formally register it, but if it's okay. sufficiently uh, sufficiently new, and as you say, it's very different to everything else that's out there, you may get protection in the style of that jacket. So uh, we would obviously advise on the, the relevant elements that might be new and original, and you could then use those original elements to try and uh, stop the other person using it. And where your design is very, very unique, it tends to be an easier argument than if there's 1,500 jackets all very similar, because you have to pick the very, very small details that are the original parts to try and say, well, they've copied the one original part from my jacket, so that shows they've relied on mine and copied mine rather than just doing something another designer in the area would naturally do. So the more original parts you've got, quite often the easier your argument is, but um, you know, it's all a matter of assessing it based on, based on those facts. So, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, okay, so we will be up at the stand as well afterwards if you've got any extra questions. I think we're H18, so. back right hand corner anyway, can't miss us. Um, so if you want to come up and ask any questions, we'll be here for another, another couple of hours anyway. So, um, but yeah, thank you very much for listening. Great, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Make It British podcast. I make an episode every Tuesday and Friday, plus there's also bonus episodes occasionally. So don't forget to subscribe in your favourite podcast app so that you get notified every time a new episode goes live. And if you enjoyed the show, I would really love it if you left me a, just a little review on iTunes. The more reviews this podcast receives, the more people will discover it and the more we can spread the word about making in the UK. Thanks once again for listening to the Make It British podcast. Bye bye.